0: You are listening to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Stay tuned for the Heartland Labor Forum, radio that talks back to the boss. The Heartland Labor Forum, a weekly show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City. This show is produced by a team of volunteers from a broad range of workplaces and unions. The views expressed on the Heartland Labor Forum are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any unions involved. And welcome again to the Heartland Labor Forum. I'm Judy Ansell. Tonight's show is being underwritten by Kansas City Building Trades Council and Millwright's Local 1529. The Greater Kansas City Building Trades Council represents 17 construction trades within Kansas City and surrounding areas. We build Kansas City. And Millwright Local 1529, over 1,000 members to serve your industrial mechanical needs, originally chartered in 1913. And the Heartland Labor Forum and KKF, I thank our underwriters for their support. On tonight's show, is Trump a fascist? More and more experts are saying, yes, he is. So what's a fascist? And how, if Trump wins in November, could working people be hurt by a fascist takeover of our government? We'll talk to Kim Sipes, labor historian. Then, pipe fitters install, repair, and maintain piping systems. Find out what's the difference between a pipe fitter and a plumber. Well, n- then you'll know who to call. <laughs> we'll talk to Kevin Hendrickson, business manager of Pipe Fitters Local 533, and find out why they're among the elites of the building trades. In the news, how could a government shutdown affect IRS workers? And workers at KCPT Channel 19 win a union. Our feature at the end of the show is Know Your Rights with Michael Amish. And now for the news. <laughs> This is the news from our side, January 18th, 2024. Congress this afternoon passed yet another temporary spending bill to keep many government departments funded through March 1st or March 8th, depending on which part of the government. That of course will pave the way for yet another budget battle in a month as House right-wingers hold Speaker Mike Johnson hostage in order to cut things they hate, like human rights for immigrants, Taxes on the super-rich and states where women have the right to an abortion. Speaker Johnson is caught between the far-right and a government shutdown, which could be bad for Republicans in the November elections. Kansas City employs a lot of federal workers. Among them are thousands of workers at the IRS. That's the Internal Revenue Service. We thought we'd check in with our National Treasury employees' first vice president, Daniel Sharpenberger, excuse me, Daniel Sharpenberg, to find out how his members are affected by all this drama. Welcome to the show, Daniel. What's the mood like at the IRS these days with all this drama about government shutdowns?
1: Hi, Judy. Thank you for having me. Anxiety is really high. I think a lot of us have experienced trauma in the 35-day shutdown we had a few years ago. So a lot of us are really anxious and nervous because It feels like we can't be confident about what's going to happen when Congress keeps extending it rather than passing a full budget. We are like like 60 something percent of Americans. A lot of us live paycheck to paycheck, which means if the government shuts down, we're going to have no money coming in and we're not going to be able to pay our bills. Last time we had a shutdown, I was one of the unlucky people that had to work without pay for 35 days and I had to get a second job just to afford the gas to get to work. So this is really a struggle for us. It's really troubling. And I think if the United States Congress could see us as real people being affected, then they would not consider a shutdown as even a remote possibility because we are being harmed. And there are thousands of us here in Missouri. There are thousands of us across the country, of course. And it can do real harm to not just our our financial well-being, but our mental and emotional well-being as well. We're really stressed out.
0: Does this affect the politics of your members? Does it make them partisan to one party or another? or, Or what do they say about that?
1: Our members are quite a bit split. And I think, like most of the nation, blame is going around in different directions. There's the direction that I think blame should go very clearly. I think it's very obvious whose fault this is, but people are finding ways to blame different politicians. So Mm -hmm. I don't know that it's really driving that among my members.
0: There are, are a number of people in Congress who would like to shut down the IRS. It seems like the right wing in Congress wants to certainly lower your appropriations. If they succeed Would there be mass layoffs here in Kansas City?
1: I'm nervous about speculating on that because I can't say for sure. Uh, Kansas City is one of the biggest IRS service centers. I can say this, cutting funding to the IRS literally makes the deficit bigger. It's a really wrongheaded thing to do because Mm -hmm. every dollar put into the IRS actually results in more money for the federal government.
0: From what I've heard in the past, it seems that when they cut appropriations for the IRS... That means the IRS doesn't have the money to go after the biggest tax cheats, the billionaires, because it costs a lot of money to prosecute those people. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, the the folks that can afford expensive lawyers are the ones that are hard to go against, of course. The people that can't afford lawyers at all, well, those are easy to go after. So that's absolutely true. The people that have whole teams of lawyers to protect them, it's really hard for us to go after. And even when we do go after them, it's hard for us to win those without the resources that we need.
0: Let's hope that the whole idea of cutting federal spending is a losing proposition.
2: On Tuesday, workers at Kansas City Public Television, Flatland and the radio station, The Bridge, voted to be represented by a union That union, the union is Communication Workers of America, National Association of Broadcast Engineers and Technicians. There was some disappointment when the National Labor Relations Board divided the workers into two bargaining units one for the six employees in marketing and the other for the 16 production, on-air talent and radio reporters. KCPT employees are now waiting for certification of their victories in both units from the NLRB, National Labor Relations Board. There was some anti-union pressure from management of KCPT but apparently not a full-blown union-busting campaign. Workers cited splitting the unit into two and meetings where management tried to discourage unionization as efforts to defeat the union. But all in all, they got a fairly quick election. No one was fired, and they looked forward to a productive labor-management relationship.
3: The Biden administration has been calling for, for federal departments to revise their policies on working at home and require federal workers to spend at least five days in the office every two weeks. Acting Secretary of the Labor Department Julie Su sent workers an email late last year requiring them to show up in person at least half of the time starting January 28th. She said reliance on maximum telework has made it difficult to develop relationships with colleagues and build a sense of community. The very things that often make work most fulfilling. Recent studies, however, have shown that the freedom to work from home has significantly lowered employee turnover and made it easier to recruit staff in an era of labor shortages. According to one Department of Labor employee we talked to, the new policy is very unpopular and may lead to Department of Labor workers rejecting a new contract proposal about to be voted on. Stay tuned. Tonight's news was read by Judy Ansell, Chris Mann and I'm Tom Gebkin. Put it there, boy, and we'll show these fascists what a couple of hillbillies can do. <laughs>
4: All oh, you fascists bound to lose. I said. All you fascists bound to lose. Yes. All oh, you fascists bound to lose. You're bound to lose, You're you fascists bound, bound to lose. There's people of every nation marching side by side, marching across the fields where a million fascists died. You're bound to lose.
2: Good evening, everyone. It's Thursday and time for the Heartland Labor Forum. So glad you are listening. The introductory music just played was sung by Woody Guthrie All You Fascists Bound to Lose. I'm Chris Mann, your host. Election year 2024, there's so much talk about candidates, but some of this talk is being generated about the current defendant candidate, Donald Trump. Is Trump a fascist? What really is fascism? How do we in the working class prepare for fascism? What are the signs or indications? More importantly, What can working people do to prevent fascism from taking root in the United States? These are all questions we will explore with our guest tonight. His name, our guest is Kim Sipes. He is a veteran and longtime trade unionist and an accomplished scholar. Kim's last name is pronounced Sipes, but it is spelled S-C-I-P-E-S in order to reference him and the work he's done in his life. Welcome Kim. Uh, tell us a little about yourself and what brought you to labor and political activism.
5: Welcome. Good to meet you, Chris. Um All right. I started out, you know, I graduated from high school and then I went into the Marine Corps for four years in 1969, which was not an astute career choice at the time, but I did it anyway and lucked out and didn't go to Vietnam. What I did for 18 of those months, though, was as my official duties was fighting racism and white supremacy uh, within the Marine Corps. Uh, I did that. Uh, I, you know, her, I read the Pentagon papers when they came out and I turned around. So I, I actually shifted on active duty from being a, you know, believing in the war, believing in the Marine Corps to opposing both. Since then I got out, I finished college. I'd gotten some while on active duty, uh, finished college and then became a printer. I was a printer for over nine years. I also did office work and, uh, I uh, taught high school, things like that. So a real varied background. But uh, later on, uh, because of getting active in my union, I, I started doing research uh, on the labor movement in the Philippines. Um, and through that, I eventually got invited to go to graduate school in the Netherlands, which I did. And then at the age of 51, I got my PhD in sociology at the University of Illinois at Chicago. So not a traditional path. And I taught there for 18 and a half years and have just retired, um, but basically bringing the world to my students in Northwest Indiana, where we were located. Um, so that, uh, so I live in Northwest Indiana, about 60 miles Southeast of Chicago on Lake Michigan. So that'll give you a little bit about my background.
2: Such a variety, uh, uh, yes. very interesting. Okay, so let's begin our conversation by talking about the economic and political situation we as working people are in now. Can you speak to this uh, economic situation as as, uh, we workers, we're continually struggling to find ourselves how we got in this economic place?
5: Okay. So let me I'm going to present some ideas that are a little different than what most usually most people usually talk about, but uh this is stuff that I've I've learned. I've I've studied I've been studying this stuff literally for 40 years. Uh so I'll bring this perspective. So if you think of the US we came out of World War II, we were the strongest economic and and mostly military power and we had since since 1945, I argue that we are basically part of the U.S. empire. That the United States has an empire, and that its entire foreign policy has been developed to dominate the rest of the world. Now, capitalism could our economic system could, could worked in such a way that it that uh, it went up to about 1981 when Ronald Reagan was elected, and then we see a big change. And I'll explain that in a moment. But basically what happened is that our capitalist economic system was, was challenged by the re- rebuilding of, of Britain and France and Germany and Japan after the war. And we could no longer economically dominate them the way that we, that, uh, that we used to. So since 1981, under both the Democrats and the Republicans, we have been under ongoing assault. And you see it you know we've all seen the tons of industry uh the factories have closed down the industry has shifted overseas uh i live in the i live in the rust belt Um uh, uh, And you know, we've seen it for, we've seen it now for 40 years. I mean, go back and watch Michael Moore's movie, uh, Roger and me. And you get, you really get to see that because that was not just confined to, uh, Flint, Michigan, but was actually the Rust Belt all over the the Midwest upper Midwest and across say to Pittsburgh or over to, to New Jersey and that area as well as California. And we've been devastated since then. All right. Now, what they have what the elites have done, been doing to to make up for this money, to keep us going is they have been basically it's our our economy has existed as well as it has since nineteen eighty, not on product, a productive capability like we've had in the past, but basically they've been writing hot checks. In other words, the deficits that we're running each year have gotten worse and worse. And let me give you where, where we can see this. I, I need to introduce the concept of the national debt. So every year, just like a family, the federal government says before the year, we're going to bring in this much money and here's how we're going to spend it. At the end of the year, they have a deficit where they don't cover it all the way or they have a surplus. And over time, they've been combining these deficits and surpluses Um together since 1789 we go back to the founding of the country and then we go and we go forward well in in uh, 1981 when jimmy carter gave up uh, power to ronald reagan the us had a national uh, national debt of less than 1 trillion dollars it was actually 9.9 billion but or 9 909 billion so 0.9 trillion less than 1 trillion dollars just last week or so ago, it was announced our national debt is over $34 trillion. Quite and a that's, Yes. That's quite and a it's jump. all been in 40, 40, uh, uh, 41 years, 42 years, something like that. So a massive thing. So basically, our economy has been in as good a shape as it is because they've been writing hot checks, not because it's based on real income. And part of that is they quit taxing the rich. That's in there as well, but the, the overall thing, and what what we see, or what I see anyway, and what I think we're gonna gonna see happening, is what well, we've been we've been seeing as attacks on working people for for these forty years, uh, and I think it's going to happen under regardless of who gets it, uh, who gets the presidency, whether the Democrats or the Republicans. Now the Democrats are trying to find ways. Uh, in, uh i guess you could say they're the lesser of two evils but the right-wing republicans the MAGA republicans are saying flat out that we're going to we are going to take the money from ordinary people and we're going to take they want to get rid of social security well that would be a havoc on anybody uh who's drawing social security plus the whole society they want they and basically and we're spending Somewhere over 850 billion dollars this year, more than all our competitive our, the country's competing with us. every year we're spending more than that money and they want to preserve that. They want to, they call it defense spending. in reality, it's war spending. okay so that so that they there's a choice they can either continue spending for war or they're going to take care of the American people. I would argue they can't do both. And the two, pub, the two parties are trying to, how can we get this passed to the people without, without pissing them off? The Republicans are the clearest. And, and it's not just Trump. I think it's, it's Haley, it's DeSantis, it's any of them. They're going to come after particularly Social Security. They're going to come after Medicare. They're going to come after schooling. They're going to come after education. They're going to keep coming after all these things. Okay, now, so you get that and you get so we're into these elections. Now first of all, I'm a little concerned about trying to focus the conversation on Donald Trump because that assumes one that he's going to get the Republican nomination and then if he does he's going to win. I'm not so sure. And uh I was I was looking at some of the uh data out of Iowa the other night. You had a stunning 11% of the Republicans who voted and yet th- something like a third of them said if Donald Trump gets convicted, he will not be the, he will, they would not vote for him. All right. So I don't think this is an open and shut case the way it's been framed. So I want to, I want to say that even if Trump doesn't get it, we're going to be in trouble and we're going to be probably in more trouble from the Republicans than the Democrats, but the Dems going to come after us too. They've got to. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. See, yeah. because it's,
5: Go ahead. I'm sorry. So,
2: so then what can we draw from history, uh, say, from Italy and Germany? Uh, what attributes are we looking, looking toward?
5: Well, first of all, what you see in both cases is that they're going to come after the labor movement. The, the labor movement, with all its strengths and weaknesses and we do have a lot of weaknesses is still the one group of people that two are or uh, that one are organized and two we we're organized inside the the uh, production distribution uh, and exchange system so we're right in there we are a threat to uh, to anybody of any political stripe who wants to come after us so we are prime target number one and and both Germany and, um, uh, and Italy I know the focus especially on Germany has always been their attacks on Jewish people and it's certainly been there there's no question but who did they go after initially went after the trade unionists and that's because we have some sort of organization we have national ties <coughs> excuse me and we have we have ways to to work together. And plus, like I say, we're located in this central part of the society. If we don't work, nothing happens.
2: You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
5: If the IRS workers don't work, they don't collect taxes. I mean, <laughs> things like that. Yeah. So so I would say in any in any history is is that or in any situation they're going to come after the labor movement.
2: So how does the labor movement fight back? Uh, what what things should we be doing in the labor movement uh, to counteract this? And another question I wanna tack on to that is, uh, are uh, fascist leaders popular enough to get elected?
5: Oh, wow, let's take that second one first. I'm not sure they're popular enough to get, uh, to get, uh, elected. Um, I think one of the things that's really strange, you know, you keep watching the news or, or hearing news reports and, and everybody's like, like, they, like I've heard people say, well, if Trump gets convicted of one of these crimes, we're going to have a civil war. I'm not seeing that. And interestingly enough, over the last three years, I've done a tremendous amount of traveling by car across the country. Um, I've gone to, I've I, I, like I say, I live outside of the uh, outside of Chicago. I have traveled all across the western most of the western states. I've gone to Washington. I've gone to Philadelphia. Um, things like this. And what I'm seeing is is people are not. People are not mad at each other. They're not riled up, and things like that. And people have been pleasant. Uh, for example, I've got a Bernie Sanders sticker on my car. I do that to to piss off some of the more reactionary Hoosiers around here. But but in 2016, within a month of putting a sticker on my car, it was keyed up. Today, four years later, there has not been a there has not been a mark on that bumpers of uh, my new bumper sticker the one for 2020. i'm not seeing i'm not seeing that i don't think most americans are are this, these crazy trump-enthused people okay um so i don't i I have some real questions about who's going to be elected certainly when you bring in the abortion issue and trump is bragging big time about that i think there's going to be a turnout of of women and and male supporters on those issues i i just don't think that uh this doom and gloom is all uh, is for certain now to get back to your larger question is what do we do about the labor movement I think the labor movement has some, some problems and that one of the biggest ones is is that, uh, we're not ideologically unified. Um, there is a lot of grassroots emergence that we're seeing, particularly around the, uh, Israel's war in Gaza, where people are not wanting to follow with the AFL CIO's leadership and that they're questioning. Uh, the national labor leadership, and personally, I think they should. Uh, I think one of the things going to happen is that people are going to have to decide if they're going to stand together. If they think labor has a large has a larger purpose in life than just getting more wages and and better salaries and more time off you know i think labor has to be involved in issues like war and peace that we have to be involved in issues like development of addressing inequalities uh such as racism and sexism homophobia these are larger issues that I think the labor movement has to take on that the that the the top labor leaders uh, don't want us to address, but I think those groups that think labor has that larger purpose need to coalesce and find ways to join together, and we need to develop ourselves. We need to educate our members. Most of the most of the unions do not have an education process, at least that I've seen. Uh, what, what if, what, do, what do we as working people want? You know, you see some glimmers and you see what happened with the UAW when they, when they organized their own members, they didn't take for granted that they would show up, they organized their members and they took on the big three and they kicked their butts. You know? So part of the thing is we've got to go to our members. And part of the thing also tie, tied into that, I just got another thought I want to say is that One of the things that we don't do is teach our members about the news media. Now the news media claims to be objective. It claims to be neutral, obviously with Fox on one hand and MSNBC and NBC on the other, neither one are, but the reality is the media has its own interests and its interests are not to educate ordinary Americans. It wants to keep us within their parameters. How they do this, for example, is listen to all the the news reports that say the left wing of the society is Joe Biden. Give me a freaking break. Joe Biden, at best, is a shade to to the left of center. There's a
2: whole range of people. Kim, we're we're running out of time, and it's uh, clear that we just touched the surface on this so we will have to ask you back again um but uh i appreciate your comments um about how we have to educate ourselves and um we appreciate your your take on on all of this so thank you well thank
5: well you're welcome chris thank you i will be glad to come back If people are interested, Google my last name, Kim Sipes, S-C-I-P-E-S, and look at my links, particularly for my publications, and get an idea of things that I've been talking and writing about. And I think it's understandable for most people uh, that it's written in a very plain language that folks can understand.
2: Okay. Thank you again, Kim. And I'm going to leave you with this poem, Liberty, uh, written by Russell Winnick. Uh, liberty guaranteed everywhere beware of those who do not care rights are the bedrock to speak our peace beware the hour this could cease this is chris mann thank you for listening next on the heartland labor forum is judy morgan and tom Gebkin interviewing pipefitter local 533 president kevin henriksen Tune in every third Thursday of the month at 7 p.m. for the People Power Hour, brought to you by KC Tenants. Every episode will address different aspects of the tenant struggle and America's problematic history with housing by providing in-depth historical analysis, testimonials, and stories from leaders who organize in their communities and who envision a better world where housing is treated as a human right. So please tune in every third Thursday of the month at 7 p.m. for the People Power Hour, brought to you by KC Tenants.
0: Homelessness in Kansas City is up 37%. You can join Restart, Inc. by visiting the Kansas City Museum to view the road home. This exhibit shares stories, incredible portraits, and video of 18 Restart participants as they share their journeys from homelessness to housing. You can visit restartinc.org
2: for more information.
4: I've held a steady job since 17. Spent the most part of my life chasing the dollar to build a life I know the wife and kids deserve. There's still red on my neck under this blue collar. Yeah, but calloused hands and a hurting back Seem to be all that I'm worth But I was on a shutdown Out in House Louisiana And that paper mill That they built in 29
3: The song you just heard was Union Man by Jeremy Falcone The work highly skilled pipe fitters do is all around us, making our lives better. Their work keeps the food we buy in the grocery store fresh and keeps cold stuff cold. Their work keeps the indoor climate of most big and small buildings comfortable. They really are the workers who have brought us into the modern world. This work is not easy, but PipeFitters spend five years learning the trade to become the best qualified and the best trained workers in the industry. On tonight's Labor Leader Series, we welcome Kevin Hendrickson, business manager of PipeFitters Local 533. He wears the hats of the JAC Trustee Chairman, Pension Trustee Chairman, and the Health and Welfare Trustee. Many in his family are union members. He began his career as a young apprentice in 1991, and he lives in the area with his wife and four children. Kevin, Judy, and I want to welcome you to the show. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Judy.
6: Hi, Kevin. Good to be with you tonight. Would you tell our audience what a pipe fitter does And discuss your local local 533 um, like how many members do you have and what geographic area does it cover
7: so how about I skip to the second part of your question first so our our membership we consist about 1900 total members uh, of which we have 600 approximately retirees and currently right around 300 apprentices so uh, 1900 working men and women out there uh, every day doing what we do, and our jurisdiction covers 21 counties. Uh, the Kansas side is real easy. We cover Miami County, Johnson County, Wyandotte County, and Leavenworth County along with the Lacing Power Plant. Uh, that is the only thing we have inside Linn County, but that is ours. And then if you go south on the Missouri side, we go south down around Nevada, Missouri, Uh, The southwest corner of our – I'm sorry, southeast corner of our jurisdiction is just into the tip of the Lake of the Ozarks. And we go northeast up around uh, Carrollton, Missouri. So I'm not that familiar with my Missouri counties to tell you what those counties are. But, yeah, we do cover 21 counties, uh, about over to Sedalia, again, up to Carrollton, down in Nevada, And then over in Kansas.
6: That's a pretty big area. Yeah,
7: yeah, yeah.
6: Do you have other people that uh, help you with that work assigned to some of those areas?
7: So they're in our office uh, full time. There's myself and two business agents, Luke Moylan and Tony Roberts. And I've split up our geographical jurisdiction between those two. So they both have their assigned portions. So uh, they help me with that part of it and then we have a, a full-time financial secretary treasurer, Chuck Roseboro, and a, a full-time organizer, Jimmy DeLynn.
6: Okay, and a lot of us have worked with plumbers at our houses when something breaks, and probably not as many of us have worked with pipe fitters. So could you tell us the difference between a so, pipe fitter and a plumber?
7: Yeah, so to the first part of your question, what does a pipe fitter do? Um, the easiest way to explain the difference between a plumber and a pipe fitter is think about what's going through the pipe chances are if whatever's in that pipe is going to enter into your body like (laughs) domestic water drinking water you know or if it's coming out of your body (laughs) chances are it's the work of the plumbers okay (laughs) Um, and we're we're a little unique in kansas city Uh, we were talking earlier how how some of our jurisdictional lines are established in our international establishes those lines and during, during a time where we had an abundance of work and Local 8 didn't so much um, the United Association awarded Local 8 uh, paint lines so when you go to like our car plants here in town the paint lines inside the car plants are actually the work of Plumbers Local 8 okay. and they are also uh, known as gas fitters so your, your natural gas lines around town uh, are the work of Plumber's Local 8. So when you get into a building, the natural gas piping inside the building is the work of Local 8. Now, your, your air conditioning systems, uh, your process piping, your, your steam generating stations, stuff along those lines, that, that is the work of the pipe fitter. So if, if it's something directly related to the human body, medical gas. When you go into a hospital, okay. you know, your medical yeah. gas is in a hospital. That's the work of Local 8. Oh, okay those medical gases are probably going to go inside of someone's That's body so um,
6: now you can said something about process process lines. process
7: so What's say that? for example in a manufacturing facility so we do a lot of work in like a lot of your uh, food processing plants we have a lot of margarine plants in our jurisdiction um, the the news are all around town the Panasonic plant oh, out mm-hmm. in DeSoto um, a manufacturing process, any piping related to that manufacturing process is a work of the pipe fitter. Um, A lot of people don't realize it, but under the streets of Kansas City, just like any other utility line, there is a lot of chilled water and steam piping that get ran to buildings for heating and cooling purposes. And the people that own the equipment that generate that steam and that chilled water, they sell that to the buildings just like you would uh, natural gas or, or water. So I spent a lot of time as an apprentice, as a matter of fact, installing new uh, steam lines underneath the streets in a lot of parts of downtown.
6: Tell us how you became a, a union pipefitter, pipe and then how did you get involved in your union? I mean, you've risen to the highest level now in your union.
7: So Tom and I were talking about this earlier. Um, I, I've always been intrigued, do, do much in, to the credit of an uncle of mine, uh, Larry Dirks. Uh, he was always filling with metal, you know, it, machining, welding, whatever. He, if it was metal, he tinkered with it. And, and I, I was always well, fascinated by that. So I, I got heavily involved in, in shop classes in high mm-hmm. school, primarily welding classes, and, and, and I feel like I did okay. And when I was a, a teenager, I knew a lot of pipe fitters around the area that I lived and around Paola. And I always had this thought that if your dad's not a pipe fitter, you'll never be a pipe fitter. And my mom's cousin was a pipe fitter. His son was a pipe fitter. And we went to church together and I was out of high school working as a boilermaker in a manufacturing mm. facility in Paola, making large vessels and, uh. I said something about wanting to get in, but I probably don't have much of a chance. And, and, you, says, and
6: you were thinking that because you thought only family, yeah, if you had yeah, a dad and, yeah. and that would be your only
7: ticket and, in. And we were at church one Sunday morning, and I made a comment to him about that, and he said, all you got to do is go apply. He said, what's going to hurt? He said, just go apply. And he said, "Now don't quit. He said, if you apply <laughs> once and don't get in, he said, keep trying. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was very fortunate. Uh, I, I did go and apply and I was fortunate to get hired. At that time, I was uh, indentured to a contractor that went by Midwest Mechanical, and I spent my five-year apprenticeship with him. And, and what, what drove me to get involved, uh, my dad was a IBW, local 412 mm-hmm. member, oh my word, 40 plus years. He was a, a employee of Kansas City Power and Light, now at the Lacing Generating Station. Uh, three years of which he was business manager for for their local Mm -hmm. union so me and my two brothers I mean we grew up in a household Mm -hmm. where you know it it was just embedded in us that what unions did and and what was the right from wrong and our our mom worked in the financial field and and I mean we were just all told work work
3: work I mean it was was, in your blood yeah yeah (laughs) yeah we were just both sides of the family Well, you hold a lot of positions. I discussed that in my introduction, and you kind of covered this a little bit, but let's go into it a little bit more. You lean on your executive board probably and other members of your team to make sure that business is taken care of and the members are taken care of. Would you discuss the importance of having good people supporting you? Tom, I tell you what.
7: The way our organization is set up, everyone – with the exception of our training staff and our organizers, elected by our body. And I am so, so blessed to have elected officials that I can count on. They support me. They're not afraid to advise me when maybe I have a bad idea <laughs> or, or maybe we need to rethink something. Mm-hmm. And, and I respect that, you know every one of those guys in that office that I work with uh every our our executive board member they they're all elected officials that still work in the field and and just the body I mean just our membership it it's nice to know that people can come to you in a respectful manner and say hey can you I don't understand what you were trying to recommend the other night at the union meeting can you kind of explain to me what you were and and it's nice you know when when people want to come to you and they want you to take the time to to just talk to them that they don't want someone that's because i said
3: they care yeah yeah they know you care
7: yeah and 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 sometimes i think people just want to be heard Mm -hmm. and and that's that's what i am i mean like i said that if if our elected officials be it e-board be it one of the agents, or our, our financial secretary, treasurer, president, vice president, whoever. I mean, if they come to me and they say, "Hey, we're we're concerned about something," and well, it's my job to listen. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, I'm I'm very very blessed, and uh, it, it'd be easy for me to handpick everybody I work with, <laughs> and and I couldn't have handpicked a better group of members that. That I can lean on and and they all support me hundred percent and I really do appreciate it
3: well I'll tell you that 533 is out there in the public I attend all kinds of meetings and Tony and Chuck are all over the place so yep yep you got great guys
6: that's a sign of a good union leader to listen so tonight on the heartland labor forum we're talking with Kevin Hendrickson who's the business manager of the pipe fitters local 533. Um, One of the things that Building Trades has been interested in 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 past years is is, uh, diversity, you know, bringing in people of color, Mm -hmm. women. So would you discuss any programs your local is involved in to move in this direction?
7: So where where we're challenged is we as a local union don't don't bring people into our apprenticeship program. we, we set a standard, a minimum set of standards that an applicant has to meet, and then our signatory contractors decide who gets hired to come into the apprenticeship program. So our efforts go towards how can we make sure that these demographics are aware of the opportunity that we have. Um, a lot of people come to us asking what we can do to hire more individuals from certain demographics and and we don't have that ability it's our it's our concern and our drive if you will just to make sure that everyone in this community that wants to be a pipe fitter knows what a pipe fitter is and knows how to go about applying for that and and our application numbers are, are reflective that You know, I think a lot of people just don't know how. So that's a lot of our efforts lately have been shifted towards we need to educate the community on what you have to do to become an applicant so that you would be considered to get employed by a contractor when they are looking to hire
6: so in your union the union itself does not hire people into the apprenticeship program Correct. then you're saying that the, that you set standards but then the contractors are the ones who go through those Correct. applications and,
7: and by standards i mean like high school diploma or equivalent okay. uh, a, a driver's license i mean it's, it's a very short list of, okay. of standards I, I don't mean like a certain math level skill okay. or, or anything like that i i mean just we make sure that they're employable okay so it it does us no good to have a long list of applicants if they're not employable Mm -hmm. so i mean just your basic requirements to be an employed person in this community that's what we look for
6: and then the contractor actually pays them during that apprenticeship program and does the union um, have any interaction with the apprenticeship apprentices during that period?
7: Absolutely. So, so our training program is a five-year apprenticeship program, and our apprentices work full-time jobs during the day, and then their schedule is 32 weeks out of the year. They go two nights a week, four hours a night, and our training staff at our apprenticeship program is made up of 100% members of the local. Um, I was actually a, an instructor at our training program for a little over 20 years. And uh, every one of our instructors were very, very proud of the fact that our program is 99. Our, our coordinator doesn't like for me to say 100. Our, our coordinator likes for me to say we're 99% self-funded. and And what I mean by self-funded is part of our collective wages get used to fund our training Mm. program so and that's that's another message I try to get to the community especially the schools you know the schools want the schools want opportunities for their students and I try to remind them our opportunities are only there because our members have employment Mm -hmm. so you need to hire contractors that will hire our members that will fund these opportunities for your students when they move on.
3: And they get the best work. Oh yeah, by hiring yeah. You guys. Uh What can a person expect after a long career as a pipe fitter? So currently,
7: Tom, we pay into three different pension plans. Um, one is an individual account, and we don't like to call it a 401k because it's not, but it's similar to. And then we have our international uh, benefit, which uh, after 35 years in the trade, you're looking at about, Twelve to $1,500 a month. Uh, our local pension, you're looking at about $100 a month for every year you work, if you work an average amount of hours. So after 35 years, you're looking at about a $3,500 a month retirement check, as well as uh, a uh, not, su- yeah, supplemented uh, health care through our health and welfare program.
6: Do, do they pay into Social Security also? Yes. yes. So, a, that, so, so you get, also, get that also? Yep, okay. so you get your Social Security so that's, as well. That's, mm-hmm. that's pretty good.
3: Yeah. It's a very uh, nice retirement.
7: Yeah. And it's hard-earned. I mean, our, our members work hard <coughs> every day to get that.
6: Well, and I think that the health care is so important, oh, yeah. I think, to everybody in this country. It's really yep. very meaningful. Uh, what would you tell someone interested in becoming a pipe fitter? What do they need to do? You, you, they you d-
7: need to go to PF... TC pipe fitter training center pftc 533.com click on apply and that's the best way to get in the apprenticeship and like the guy told me Don't quit trying.
6: (laughs) Well, thank you. That's persistence has always paid off well for me. So I agree. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) I agree with you. I'm Judy Morgan, and with my co-host Tom Gepkin, we thank you, Kevin Hendrickson, business manager for the Pipefitters Local 533, for being with us this evening. It was very informative, and we learned a lot. Thank 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 you, you. Judy.
3: Thank you, Kevin.
7: Thanks, Tom.
4: For your Get right. up, stand up. up for your Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Get up, up. Don't give up the fight.
8: Good evening. Welcome to another edition of Know Your Rights. This is Mike Amash with the law firm of Blake and Euleg. This month on Know Your Rights, we're going to discuss the Warren Act. The Worker Adjustment and Retraining Notification Act. Under the WARN Act, you must receive a written notice 60 days before the date of a mass layoff or plant closing if you meet conditions. If your employee does not give you the required notice, you may be able to seek damages for back pain benefits up to 60 days depending on how many days of notice you actually received. Note you're only protected by WARN in certain situations. If it is business with 100 or more full-time workers, or employs 100 or more workers who work at least 4,000 hours a week and is a private or for-profit or non-profit business and some quasi-public entities, then you might be covered by Warren. Workers protected by Warren may be hourly or salaried, including managerial and supervisory employees. Generally, there are three situations that trigger a Warren Notice Obligation. One, in the case of a plant closing where your employer shuts down a facility or operating unit within a single site of employment and lays off at least 50 full-time workers. Number two is at a mass layoff where your employer lays off either between 50 and 499 full-time workers at a single site of employment and that number is 33% or more of the full-time workers at that site. And finally, the third situation is when your employer lays off 500 or more full-time workers at a single site of employment. Now, I've used the term single site multiple times, and that's an important term Warren. A single site can be a single location or group of contiguous locations, meaning a group of structures that form a campus or industrial park <clears throat> or separate facilities across the street from one another. They may be considered a single site. Separate buildings or areas that are not directly connected, but are in reasonable proximity and share staff and equipment are also a single site. Now, for workers who primarily travel, a single site may be where there's a home base from which work is assigned, and a home base from which workers report. Now, with some limited exce- exceptions, a worker must receive a written notice 60 calendar days, calendar days, before the layoff or plant closing. You're entitled to receive that 60-day notice if you are a part-time worker or a full-time worker or work at another site and may lose your job due to the layoff or plan closing. The written notice a worker receives must include the following inf- information. An explanation of whether the layoff or closing is permanent or temporary of six months or less, the date of layoff or closing, and the date of the worker separation. The employer may give notice that you'll be separated within a two week or 14 day period after a certain date. Further, your company must provide the name and contact information for a person who can provide additional information. Now, it's also important to note that that there is a situation where an individual worker does not need to receive an individual written notice from their employer. That is where there is a union that represents the worker. In that place, the employer must only give notice to the union. The union is then obligated to dispense that information how and when it deems most appropriate. It's also significant to note that a verbal announcement at an employer meet at an employee meeting or small staff meetings does not meet the warrant notice requirements. Now if an employer fails to give appropriate warrant notice, that written notice within 60 calendar days of the layoff, an employer is obligated to pay each affected employee an amount equal to back pay and benefits for the period of violation up to 60 days. An employer may also be liable to a per-day violation of $500 a day where it involves a unit of local government. A war notice is also significant because it triggers a state rapid response dislocated worker unit, which is there to help workers who are displaced from the layoff find new employment. This is all the time we have this month for Know Your Rights. This is Mike Amash with Blake & Ullig. Have a good evening.
0: And I'm Judy Ansell with the calendar. You can find our calendar on our Facebook page. It'll be up there later tonight. And that's the Heartland Labor Forum Facebook page. The Wyandotte County Democratic Breakfast will be Saturday, January 20th, 8.15 for breakfast, nine o'clock for the speaker at Las Islas Sports Bar, 4929 State Avenue in Kansas City, Kansas. Speakers are uh, will be talking about the new legislative session They're gonna be representatives Melissa Oropesa and Pam Curtis. March for Gaza to demand that Representative Sharice Davids support a ceasefire. Saturday, January 20th, 1 p.m. at Granada Park, which is at 51st and Granada Street in Roland Park. This is sponsored by the KC ceasefire coalition. Labor rally, solidarity at the Kansas State House, Wednesday, January 24th, 10 a.m kansas state capitol topeka speakers include aft president randy weingarten uh, uh, machinist president brian bryant united steelworkers district director kathy drummond and cwa's billy moffett and missouri legislators returning to jeff city this month and uh, have filed two dozen bills to gut Missouri's longstanding citizen initiative process. You're invited to the Missouri Jobs with Justice Lobby Day to tell legislators what you think of that and other bills aimed at cutting unemployment benefits and the rights of LGBTQ kids. That's on Tuesday, January 30th, 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. in the Capitol building in Jeff City. And you can can sign up. And find the link on our Facebook page. That's it for tonight's show. Tune in next week. Uh, The show is going to be with Pablo Sanhuesa on the political economy of jazz. And also, we're going to do a history of Labor's Political 40 Club. Thanks to tonight's engineer, Stephen Hill. The Heartland Labor Forum is a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network of over 200 radio shows and podcasts from around the U.S. and the world. Find them at laborradiopodcastnetwork.org. And stay tuned. Casey Tennant's People Power Hour is on at 7 o'clock. Tune in. listening to the heartland labor forum a show by and about workers our workplaces and our labor movement we are radio that talks back to the boss and you can talk back to us too send us your feedback your workplace stories news and ideas for shows to heartland labor forum kkfi at gmail.com our website, where we archive shows and post our upcoming ones, is heartlandlaborforum.org. The views expressed on this show are ours, and not necessarily those of KKFI or any of the unions involved. Tune in every Thursday evening at 6, or to our rebroadcast Friday mornings at 5, right here, 90.1 FM, KKFI. We still got our pride,
9: cause we are the working class and best place to be He said if I